Welcome to episode 148 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my writing and the personal case reviews of my former colleagues who served in the FBI. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Robert Herndon, who served in the FBI for 28 years. Before joining the Bureau, he was employed as a CPA. In this episode, Bob Herndon reviews an antitrust corporate fraud investigation involving Archer Daniels Midland, a global food processing corporation convicted of operating a price-fixing scheme to steal millions of dollars from its customers. Herndon also discusses Mark Whitaker, his rogue cooperating witness who had a hidden agenda that nearly destroyed the careers of Herndon and his co-case agent, Brian Shepard. The case was the subject of a true crime thriller, The Informant by Kirk Eckenwald, and a feature film by the same name starring Matt Damon. During his FBI career, in addition to the ADM investigation, Herndon worked several other major cases. Herndon received the Attorney General's Award for Distinguished Service, was the Agent of the Year, and received an award from the director of the CIA following a three-year deep undercover assignment focused on a foreign adversary. Bob Herndon retired as a supervisor overseeing complex financial crime cases in the Kansas City Division. Bob is currently the president of the WCC Group, LLC, an entity that conducts employment background investigations, financial integrity reviews, and provides presentations and training to professional groups. There is a reason that this case became both a best-selling book and a feature film. During part one, the case review is going to seem like any other case review. But once we get to the end of the episode, you're going to be able to see that part two is going to be an emotional roller coaster, which once again demonstrates the sacrifices that agents sometimes are asked to make for their investigations. Before we get to the interview, I just have a few things. First of all, I want to welcome all of my new listeners. This year, I plan to be more focused in my mission. I actually changed my intro just a tiny bit. And I did that based on the work that I did with Elsie Escobar and the E-League planning for 2019. Yes, this is a true crime and history podcast, but I also wanted to have a social impact. Thank you, Elsie, for helping me focus on what I want to get across in 2019. And that is, how do you support the FBI? I'm supporting the FBI through my non-political, non-partisan interviews about the work the FBI does, as opposed to what you see about the FBI in books, TV, and movies, and on the quote-unquote news. I'm also supporting the FBI through recruiting efforts, and so I'm giving you a call to action. I'm going to be having a special agent recruiter from the Philadelphia Division on the show next month 
So if you have any questions about the recruitment process and being hired as an FBI agent, please send them in to me at jerrywilliamsauthor at gmail.com and put FBI Q&A in the subject line. You'll find more information about how I plan to support the FBI and this special recruiting episode in my January monthly email. For those of you who are already a member of my reader team, you should have gotten that email. And if you haven't, check your spam filter. And for those of you not yet a member of my reader team, all you need to do to join is go to my website, Jerry Williams, J-E-R-R-I, williams.com and sign up there. Or if you're listening to this episode on a podcast app that supports links, you'll find a link to join my reader team right in this episode's description. When you join, you get my FBI reading resource, which is a list of books about the FBI written by FBI agents. There's more than 45 books listed there now. And you also get a copy of my FBI reality checklist, which is a list of cliches and misconceptions about the FBI in books, TV, and movies. Thank you so much for asking about my arm and shoulder. I did have a terrible case of tendinitis. I'm doing much better and just have to be more careful as I sit for hours at the computer, writing my books and editing the podcast. I'm also happy to announce that I am going to be having my second grandchild. It's a girl, courtesy of my son and his girlfriend who live out in Seattle, Washington. At the end of the interview, I'll talk to you about my crime fiction and nonfiction plans for 2019. But for now, here's the show. I am excited to introduce you to my guest, Bob Herndon. Hi, Bob. How are you? Very good, Jerry. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. Now, we've already talked uh, before, and I told you that you know when we connected on LinkedIn, I was almost giddy. The informant by Kirk Eichenwald has been one of my favorite books forever. I was turned on to the book by the security, what was his role? Uh, director of security at ADM. Right. So he was, yeah. So, and he was the director of security, I believe, at Milton Bradley. When I met him, I was doing an investigation, and I was at the Milton Bradley plant in Springfield, Massachusetts, and I met him there, and he told me about the book, and I came back home and picked it up, and it is my favorite, my favorite, and I have proof because <laughs> like in 2016, when I started doing this podcast and, and sending out a, uh, a monthly email to my readers and listeners, I declared this as my favorite narrative nonfiction book. So I'm not just making that up. I have proof. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so yeah, I, I, I will tell your listeners uh, to prove your point. Jerry also sent me a picture of her book, her copy of the book, dog-eared and um, marked up like she's read it several times. I think Jerry actually knows the story better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and I lived it. <laughs> well, we'll see in a minute. I, okay. and, and because I love the book so much, and I just recently re reread it uh, over the last couple of weeks, because it's a long one, almost 600 pages. I have so many notes and so many questions. But I think that may kind of mess everything up. Because 
I understand that you've given this as a presentation many, many times. Yeah, so I give presentations every so often. Last month, I was asked to go to Michigan, and I spoke to a group of security individuals and um, private investigators talking about the informant, but also talking about lessons learned, lessons that we can apply in the real world at corporate America. Back when I was an active duty agent, I was asked many times to go to universities to talk to the business students who were getting ready to enter the business world. The professors of ethics wanted me to let the students know about my experiences with some people they may be working with someday in corporate America. That is, many of the students didn't realize that they may be challenged ethically in ways they had never believed possible. And so I would kind of scare them straight, so to speak, with these stories um, on the informant case, uh, but also on a case I had on a federal judge who took a bribe, and then also a case where I was co-case agent of a pharmacist who diluted chemotherapy drugs for profit. So um, I have given the story many different times. And of course, this case took about five and a half years. I will not be talking for five and a half years. And so certainly I'll have to not hit every, every point, but I hope to give your listeners a flavor of the case and the challenges we faced and how really the story is more about the personal challenges and how this case affected us as individuals as much as it is about clicking evidence of wrongdoing. Well, I think what I'm going to do is just sit back and let you talk. Maybe occasionally I'll jump in and, and make a comment, but I do want to say and let everybody know that the back of this book, the paperback that I'm holding, what it says about this case is that the case is about double-crossing, conspiring, lying, and dirty dealing. That's a great way to start off. That sounds perfect. The case started, started with a lie, so let's just start right there. Okay. What Jerry just quoted from was a book called The Informant, which became a New York Times bestseller. The author of the book, Kurt Eichenwald, attended the trial in Chicago, a trial that went on for about three and a half months. He attended that trial every day, and he'd write stories for The New York Times. At the end of the trial, uh, Mr. Eichenwald approached myself and my partner, Brian Shepard, and said, I'm going to write a book about this case, and I'm going to talk to you two. Well, Brian and I told him, good luck with that, because active duty agents are never allowed to talk about a case to, to a reporter. Little do we know that Mr. Eichenwald was friends, so to speak, with Director Louis Free. Kurt Eichenwald had written a previous book about a case that Director Free worked when uh, Director Free was an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York. And Kurt Eichenwald went up to the director's office one day and made a proposal to write a book almost told through the eyes of the agents. So when you read the book, The Informant, you learn many of the things as we learned them as case agents. And um, this was in the backdrop of uh, Waco and Ruby Ridge. And Director Free wanted to have a more positive story about hardworking FBI agents and how a case is put together and some of the things that happened to the agents themselves during a case. Director Free did something I had never seen in my career. I'd been, well, I ended up being with the FBI for 28 years, so, but I'd been around for a long time and I'd never seen this. He actually sent a communication to um, our special agent in charge and encouraged him to make us available for this author. So that's the book. The author spent a lot of time with the participants, with attorneys and agents, defense counsel, all the participants in the book. The author spent a lot of time with those individuals. The book is footnoted and um, everything is sourced out. 
Well, the book became um, a bestseller in the New York Times nonfiction list. And then a director in Hollywood named Steven Soderbergh, he bought the rights to the book. Mr. Soderbergh wanted to make a dark business comedy, kind of to my chagrin, because, um, of course, I wanted a Jason Bourne type of movie. But Mr. Soderbergh had his own vision. His vision was to have a dark comedy. He wanted the lead characters played by comedians. He filmed this movie in about 34 days, which is unheard of. Most of the scenes are one shot, and it's got the craziest music you've ever heard. It took me about 15 times watching the movie before I really liked it and appreciated it. But it is cool that a movie was made about a case that I worked on. The first time I saw the movie, and this, of course, is a movie made based on a book that I loved, I wasn't sure if I liked it. I came out of the theater, and I, I think my opinion was swayed by the fact that my husband looked at me and said, what did you just make me watch? So he hated it. <laughs> so I wasn't sure if I liked it or not. Well, I watched the movie again a couple of days ago, and I actually liked it this time. I, I got the, the dark humor. I found it pretty interesting. So it's interesting that you said it took you a while to, to catch on to it, too. You know, it's not what us FBI agents like. We like a black and white drama, nothing but the facts. And this, of course, was a movie, as it should have been, focused on the source. We don't work these cases to be focused on us. That's not why I didn't like it. It's just that the movie is an hour and 40 minutes, and everything we saw in like a five and a half year period was condensed to an hour 40. And so it really seems over the top. And um, they added this kind of different music to emphasize the point that this is a crazy story. Now, the things you see in the movie, they actually happened. They kind of condense some scenes and they add characters, but the actual events, those things happened. Like I said, it was pretty neat having a movie made and I got to meet those guys. And for about two years, I kept telling my wife and my friends, hey, they're making a movie about a case I worked and Matt Damon is going to be the lead. I think my wife got a little bit tired of this. And one day she brought to me a picture of the guy playing me in the movie, a guy named Joel McHale. And he's a comedian. And in this picture, he has his shirt off and he's looking kind of goofy. And um, that brought me back down to earth. And wives are good at doing that. So I really appreciated that. I did get to go out to the movie set a couple times and watch the filming. And that was pretty neat. Matt Damon, for the role, gained 40 pounds. He told me that he um, had a diet of pizza and beer. Uh, he wore a toupee during the movie. He wore cheek expanders uh, to make his face look fuller. He wore a phony mustache and these big wire rim glasses. The guy still looked pretty good, and he did a really good job portraying the complicated life of our cooperator, Mark Whitaker. The ADM story started, the case started in November 1992. ADM, also known as Archer Daniels Midland, is a Fortune 50 company. So we've all heard of Fortune 500 companies. It's the same list. It's just that ADM is one of the top 50 companies in America when it comes to uh, sales. ADM is a company that, that most people are not familiar with. What they do is they buy the grains from the farmers. They process those grains, and then they, they sell the end product back to the food manufacturing companies. ADM used to have a commercial where they claimed that if you were to walk down your supermarket aisle, just about every product you passed would have at least one ingredient that went through the mills of ADM. A very powerful company. Their leader at, their at that time was a man named Dwayne Andreas. 
Mr. Andreas called presidents by their first name. He had been to the White House many times. He had had very influential congressmen visit him at his resort down in Miami. Mr. Andreas also called world leaders by their first names, and he visited with Miguel Gorbachev. ADM every year was the leading contributor to the Republican National Party. They were also the leading contributor to the Democratic National Party, a very powerful company located in a city of about 70,000 people in central Illinois, ADM. Our case centered on a man named Mark Whitaker. Mark Whitaker was the youngest president of an ADM subsidiary in their company history. Mark was about 34 years old. He was a PhD from Cornell University. Mark was hired to head a division of ADM called the Bioproducts Division. And what the Bioproducts Division did was many of their products were made in test tubes. The leading product was gonna be one called Lysine. Lysine is chicken feed. It's fed to the chickens, it makes them fat, dumb, and happy. It gets them to market much faster than, the, than they normally would. Can you imagine if you had a product in which you had the best chicken feed? And we all know how popular chicken is in, in America. And if you had the market on the best chicken feed, you can make a lot of money. There were no American companies at that time making this product lysine. All the competitors were overseas. And so ADM really wanted to get this product up and running, but there was a problem. It's hard to make lysine. It's a complicated um, production process. Mark Whitaker and his division were losing $7 million a month on this product. And they had been losing it for six months in a row. Not many companies can absorb $42 million in losses. And um, Mark's boss, a man named Michael Andreas, Michael was the son of Duane Andreas, the man who called presidents by their first name. So Michael Andreas, who's Mark's boss, was getting mad and he was frustrated with Mark and Mark was feeling the pressure. Mark was worried he may be fired. And so what does he do? Well, thankfully for us in the FBI, Mark decided one day to go to work and tell his boss what he thought was a little white lie. That's why I said earlier, this case started on a lie. And so he went into work one day and I think the, the, the lie he told his boss was a little bit more than just a white lie. It's pretty involved. But the basic storyline was that Mark claimed he had just gotten a call from the number one competitor um, of the product Lysine, um, a company called Genomoto Corporation. They're located in uh, Japan. Mark claimed that a scientist from that company called him the night before and said, the reason you cannot make lysine, the reason you're losing $7 million a month is because our company has introduced a microorganism. We're sabotaging your, your lysine production process. You'll never be able to make it. The scientist went on, according to Mark Whitaker, to say that if you pay me $10 million, I'll give you the antidote. And so Mark went to his boss with that story. And you're, you're letting us know that it's a lie, but you know, from reading the book, I know that, that you really didn't know it was a lie until maybe almost at the end of the investigation. That's right. We are told one lie after the next. It becomes very frustrating and very complicated to, to run this source. You know, I can now, looking back, know that almost everything he told us was probably a lie. In fact, I thought one of the smartest things our, um, our prosecutors did 
um, during opening arguments um, in Chicago at the federal trial, they told the jury this. They said to the jury, don't believe one word Mark Whitaker ever said because we don't, but listen to the tapes. And that's what we ended up doing because as Mark continued to lie to us, we checked out each story and they weren't panning out. We would then give him a polygraph test and Mark was blowing ink all over the walls and uh, we would confront him. And in the confrontation, Mark would tell us more lies. He'd tell us some truths, but he'd also tell us more lies. And in regards to this extortion from the Japanese company, we did not finally get a full confession from Mark until close to the end of the case. Now, we had our suspicions early on that, that perhaps it did not unfold the way Mark had said. But at the time, um, when Mark is telling his boss this story, the boss is very happy. He sends Mark off. Mark is happy because Mark believes now that he's bought some time. The reason the boss is happy, Michael Andreas, is he had a thought that he could now negotiate the $10 million down to about $5 million. He was willing to pay that because they were losing $7 million a month. It put an end to that. But he also had an ace up his sleeve. He and others at his company knew some people in the CIA. And so they contacted the CIA and said, hey, there's this Japanese company, according to one of our executives, who is trying to extort us of $10 million. And um, they thought that was a proper place to report that. They also believed that the CIA would do some things behind the scenes, perhaps, and, and maybe damage, you know, ADM's competitor, their number one competitor in this new product called Lysine. Well, the, the CIA took a look at this information and, and quickly deduced that, hey, this is more of a domestic matter. This is something the FBI would handle. They handle extortions. As the information worked its way through Langley, pretty soon it got referred to the FBI and then eventually got referred down to the Decatur Resident Agency of the FBI. Uh, just to give your listeners a little bit of um, context, the Decatur office of the FBI is a two-man office. Typically in a two-man office, we're working uh, bank robberies and, and local type of crimes and, and not so much sophisticated white-collar investigations. When this information first came to the um, attention of the FBI, I wasn't even assigned to the Springfield Division of the FBI. I was still in Washington, D.C. on a uh, special assignment, which ironically was working with the CIA. Little did I know that the people I was working with were actually re referring my next case in my next office. My partner, Brian Shepard, a, a great agent, a man who could talk your ear off all day long, he went out to ADM and he interviewed the company as if they were, were a victim of an extortion. So he interviewed Mark Whitaker and the director of security, Mark Chevron, and then Michael Andreas was there and um, one of the company attorneys. And so what does Mark Whitaker do when, when Brian Shepard, an FBI agent, is out there asking him about the extortion? He lies again. And now we have a real, a real problem, or at least Mark Whitaker has a real problem, because to lie to an FBI special agent is a crime, uh, which has been all over the newspapers recently, everything going on in Washington, D.C. Lying to the FBI can be prosecuted. And, and Mark goes through the details as if they're real. Agent Shepard copies everything down. Well, my partner, Brian, he left that meeting. And he starts checking out these, the story and, and things aren't making sense. He also ends up taking a tape recorder out to Mark's house so he could, can record the extortion call. And Mark's wife, 
knowing that there's some other things going on at ADM because her husband had told her, says, hey, honey, you need to let the FBI know these things. You need to tell them everything that's going on. And so she pushed Mark in the direction of cooperating with the FBI. His gut, gut reaction was not to cooperate with the FBI, but she pushed him in, in the direction of the FBI is here. You tell me there's some things going on at the company that you don't approve of. You need to tell the FBI. And that night when Brian delivered the tape recorder to be placed on Mark's um, home line, Mark Whitaker told Brian Shepard for the first time that ADM is doing a lot of different things to include fixing prices with its competitors. I'm still not assigned to the investigation because I'm still in Washington, D.C., but the Springfield office starts to investigate this claim and they start checking things out. And um, a lot of things are going on behind the scenes. Mark Whitaker is changing his story from day to day. And um, one time he comes into the office and, and starts to claim that the company now does not want to cooperate with the investigation. And so then the Springfield office opened an obstruction of justice investigation. Things are very confusing. Now, this is not uncommon in the FBI when we work with cooperating witnesses. Thankfully, we have them, but they also cause a lot of our problems. You know, these cooperating witnesses, they're able to help us on a case because they themselves are involved in criminal activity. But that right there is a mark on their character. It presents challenges. This might be a, a good time for you to explain to everyone the difference between a cooperating witness and an, and an informant, because really the name of the book and the name of the movie is kind of uh, uh, a misnomer. It, it is. In fact, I, I told the author, I said, hey, um, at that time in the FBI, we, we didn't really use the term informant. Um, the, the right term for, for Mark Whitaker would have been cooperating witness. The author looked at me, he said, Bob, a book called The Cooperating Witness is not going to sell as many copies as a book called The Informant. He does make notes someplace in the book I saw fairly recently that the technical term was cooperating witness. You know, we have sources. So we have different categories of sources. In, in a situation on a white collar crime case where somebody is actively helping the FBI collect evidence, in this case, making tape recordings, and they themselves are involved in the criminal activity, they are typically called a cooperating witness. And there usually is some sort of uh, agreement with them about prosecution and about testifying. The plan is that they will be a witness someday when the case goes to trial. Now, that's as opposed to maybe a, um, a counterintelligence case where the case is not going to go to trial. And so there's no reason to have a cooperating witness. You may have truly a source, a symbol source, a named source, but a source of information, somebody who's given you information of use that you can pass along. So I think I, I tend to agree with the author that the informant sounds a lot more um, more of a cool title than the cooperating witness. But Mark was, was inside uh, the FBI. He was known as a CW, a cooperating witness. And as I said, most cooperating witnesses in a white-collar investigation, they end up making tape recordings because that's the best evidence. Now, as Jerry probably knows, you don't just give a, a, a source a tape recorder because you had to live with what's on that, that tape. And just like the movie had a director, most tape cases, you have a director. That, the, that's the case agents. And so Brian and I, by this time, I'm involved in the case. I've now been transferred from Washington, D.C. to Springfield, Illinois. 
And my first day in the office, they tell me, hey, you've been traded. Uh, we see that you have some large case experience. You're also a CPA. We have this case out in the Decatur RA, about 40 miles away. And um, it involves a large company. And we want an agent there with some financial experience and some big case experience. And so I was sent out on my first day to the Decatur office, made that commute then for the next five years from Springfield to Decatur. When I read that part uh, of the book, I, I laughed a little bit because you had actually moved about three minutes from the office. And now you're being told you are going to be actually working 40 minutes away. So uh, your, your great planning <laughs> right. was, was ruined. Well, agents are always about the commute. I just came from a big city, Washington, D.C., and traffic was on my mind. And I was so excited to have a three-minute commute, no major freeways, just a couple stop signs, and that was dashed the very first day in the office. Now, with that said, driving 40 miles in central Illinois is no big deal, but um, it was a little bit different than three minutes. So when I first met Brian, you know, I could tell right, right away, I like this guy. And uh, he started telling me about the case. We are at the point now where this gentleman, Mark Whitaker, had lied to the FBI um, on several occasions. And when that happens, you know, what do we do in the FBI? We get somebody a tape recorder and say, you know, let's prove it now. And this is where the rubber hits the road. Now, as I said earlier, we do not just give them a tape recorder because when someone gets on tape, you have to live with it. And defense attorneys are very skilled at showing what's on the tape and what's not on the tape. You had to plan this well in advance. And so I was breaking down the statute. The statute involved was price fixing, the Antitrust Sherman Act. It's a Title 15 offense. But I was also breaking down wire fraud and mail fraud and um, understanding those concepts and having Mark introduce those, those um, elements in, in his conversations. And we were listening very carefully to what the um, subjects were saying. Had the subjects in this particular case um, on the first few tapes um, not acknowledged their participation in a criminal scheme, we would have shut this thing down. Because remember, this witness had lied to us several times and had failed a couple of polygraphs. So the tapes were very important in the very beginning. And in the end, because of all the lies that eventually came out, all the misdirection, the tapes are what ended up convicting the subjects. The case is a little bit older, so it was not made with our digital recorders that we have nowadays in the Bureau that can be shaped and formed into almost anything and can tape all day long and are, are you know, very nice pieces of equipment. This case was made back when we used reel-to-reel -reel tape. And Mark's main recording device for a long time was what we call the NAGRA recording device. It, it's a real... <laughs> fairly big recorder that fits in the small of your back. And um, I would meet with Mark many mornings uh, to put the recorder on the small of his back. And the microphones actually taped to the inside of your collarbone, that, that gap that's there. The problem is that Mark is a very hairy man. And the microphones would not stick, the tape would not stick to his hair. And so a couple times a week, I'd end up shaving him. And can you just picture that? Uh, two guys meeting at about 6.30 in the morning, and I'm undressing his shirt and shaving the hair off of his collarbone area uh, to tape the microphones. Oh, the um, sacrifices <laughs> agents have to make. Yeah. Uh, needless to say, Mark and I uh, became very close as we did this for about two and a half years, and he made over 200 
tapes. So eventually, as the case went on, uh, we got other concealment devices. We had one of our employees in the Springfield office who was really good at sewing. She sewed a recording device into the liner of his jacket. We had our Quantico unit, um, electronics unit. They developed some concealments that, that matched his briefcase or his notebook, his day planner, and some other devices that we had him carry, a watch that, that helped to record some of the meetings. But anyway, the point being here is that you have to be very careful on these taping cases. You have to stay on top of the tapes. You have to typically, we give our cooperators one or two key phrases to, to develop, ask the question, and then be quiet. Because the tape is not what the cooperator says. It's what the subject says in return. One of our very first tapes we had in this case told us that on the issue of price fixing, Mark Whitaker was telling the truth. That tape was of the president of ADM at the time, a man named Jim Randall. The Japanese competitors from Ajinomoto Corporation had been invited over to um, ADM's headquarters. And um, in a packed conference room, you have the president of a Fortune 50 U.S. company telling his number one competitor in the product lysine, he tells him on tape, we have a saying here at ADM that penetrates the whole company. It's a saying that our competitors are our friends and our customers are the enemy. When we heard that, yeah. we knew that <laughs> ADM was a different type of company. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's very powerful. As a side note, when I talk to the, um, the college students, I, I tell them, hey, look, this is a real real leadership um, point to, to remember that the person who occupies the corner office and has a fancy title, they may not be the leader. Uh, the person that cleans the office is, is just as likely to be a leader. So don't get confused by titles and about where your office is. But that one tape, that one tape put this case on a fast pace. And so after hearing that, I, I asked Mark Whitaker one day, I said, look, Mark, you're a PhD. Uh, you're young. You're from Cornell University. You're not really a businessman. How do you know how to fix a market? And he says, I don't. But our company has a vice president who is known as the fixer. I said, really? He goes, yeah, this guy, he doesn't really do vice president work. All he does is he goes around to different product lines and he tells the, the people involved in those product lines how to form a price fixing conspiracy. This man was named Terry Wilson. And so our next set of tapes, Jerry, were aimed at Mr. Wilson. Get, getting him on tape, we wanted to verify what Mark was saying. And so on tape, we, we hear or we heard Mr. Wilson tell Mark and to tell the Japanese and Korean competitors, the way you do this is you form a trade association for cover. Now, many of us have heard about trade associations, and they are legal entities that allow competitors to meet together to try to better the industry or the product line. And they're highly regulated. There are attorneys involved, involved in the meetings to make sure that the competitors are not talking about things they should not be talking about. Terry Wilson said, hey, let's form one of these. But at our meetings, we won't have any attorneys. But it'll give us a reason. It'll give us an alibi if we're ever questioned why we were meeting. Now, of course, when we hear him describe this in detail on tape, his alibi goes out the window because um, now we know the truth behind the, the association. So he tells, uh, he tells Mark and the others, 
you form this association, and then you also you meet overseas because the FBI cannot do anything overseas. Well, Mr. Wilson was wrong. We yes. can do we can do things overseas. Sorry. Yes, and every time these guys would talk about meeting overseas, Brian and I would like high five each other because it meant that we are going to get a trip overseas. Now, Mr. Wilson was correct in that we can't take our recording equipment and work unilaterally over there, but we have legats um, at American embassies, and they have connections with foreign police departments, and we work through a tried and trusted procedure and process where we seek their cooperation, and the law enforcement entities, knowing that this is a fraud case and fraud is a crime in their country, they're very happy to, to assist with the FBI. That's also where the National Academy comes in play that the FBI sponsors at Quantico and that we bring many foreign officers over to the National Academy and they get to know us. They get to know that, that we are professionals and we do things by the book and they're willing to help us. Likewise, when I was a supervisor in Kansas City, about once or twice a year, we'd have a, a case in which a foreign police entity would contact us and have investigation, have a need to interview people in the Kansas City area, and we would accommodate after getting the the proper approvals. So Mr. Wilson also told Mark Whitaker, besides forming a trade association as cover, besides meeting overseas, also be very careful on the telephones here domestically because the FBI is listening. And uh, he was right. Uh, We were listening to many of these phone calls. So typically, Jerry, what would happen here is for two and a half years, we would follow Mark Whitaker around the world as he met with his competitors in the product line Lysine. And typically what they would do is they would go to a nice hotel in a foreign country. They'd meet in the hotel lobby. They'd have drinks. Uh, They'd talk about sports, family, current events. Then they would go upstairs to Mark's hotel room. And we would joke that if you saw... 10 middle-aged business executives sneaking up to one hotel room. No good can come from that situation. And we knew what these guys were doing because we had this little green lamp in the room. And this lamp was pretty cool. It had a, a camera inside it. And that camera worked off microwave signals where I could move the camera to pan the room. And it would also not, not only provide video, but it would also provide audio. And so we were able to see what these guys were doing in, in the hotel rooms with this camera. I had to say that that was one of the, the funny parts in the, in the book when it's noticed by you that, you know, headquarters keep setting you the same green lamp. But I, yeah. know, I know men, and I'm, I'm sorry to, to be <laughs> sexist, that in most cases, the other men have no idea and have not even made any type of acknowledgement of what lamps are in what hotel rooms. Well, Jerry, you bring up a good point. We started to joke that we are so lucky there are no female co-conspirators because the females would have noticed the same lamp following and, these guys all over the world. And that's true. I mean, <laughs> it, it really is. Somebody's somebody's probably going to email in or something and say, oh, I, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's sexist, but... I, I had to admit, I probably would have said, that's the same lamp. I, I saw that same lamp in the last hotel room, but yeah. it is funny. You know, I do want to stop you for a second, and sure. I'm, try, I'm trying not to interrupt because I want this in, you know, good chronological order. And so I'm trying not to ask questions because I think you're going to cover them later. But one of the things that we really haven't established yet, and I think it's time to, is why 
price fixing is, is wrong? Sure. The, the simple answer is um, this was chicken feed. And so when, when the fix is in, when they're controlling the price, when you and I go to uh, McDonald's and buy our chicken McNuggets, we're paying too much money. You know, our economy is based off of supply and demand and a competitive nature amongst competitors and suppliers of products. But when the, the suppliers of one product get together and all decide to control the amount of the product and what prices will be charged, the market is not setting the price. The suppliers are. And that's not what we're set up to do um, in our economy. That's good old price fixing when you can control the price and more importantly, the volume, the output of each company. We found in this investigation that product lines in which there are only four or five or six suppliers, those are the ones that are ripe to have the prices fixed. Because when you have too many people involved, someone for sure will speak up to say either this is wrong or uh, we're going to get caught, so I'm not going to do it. But when you just have a few companies, it's, it's uh, interesting how the psychology gets involved and you know, a few people can agree to do something that's illegal, something that will change their lives and change their companies for, forever. So anyway, the answer to your question is price fixing has a long lineage in this country from the Sherman Act back from the Industrial Revolutionary days, Standard Oil and those monopolies we had, that Congress said, look, this is not going to be good uh, for the American public. We have to break up these monopolies. We can't let them monopolize uh, our product line and, and set, the, set the prices. So the, the statute we use was known as the Sherman Act. It's a very old statute. In fact, uh, the statute had not been updated, and most antitrust cases up to this point were not of a criminal nature, but more of a civil. And so the statute only had a three-year maximum on a criminal case, where fraud statutes have a much higher ceiling. And we tried hard to, to charge fraud, and I'll get into, into that a little bit later. But we, uh, we use the antitrust statute primarily because within the Department of Justice, there is an antitrust division. And they ended up with this case after multiple fights with the United States Attorney in the Central District of Illinois, um, but they ended up with a case and they wanted to charge the, the Sherman Act. For two and a half years, we followed Mark Whitaker around the world and we heard his competitors and his bosses at ADM say some pretty incredible things. We saw them charge or decide what prices to charge in each market. They would name which company would be the market leader in a certain country. And uh, we also then saw them agree on the volume um, how much production of lysine each company could make. But some of the statements that we collected from Mark's boss, Michael Andreas, one that really struck out to, or uh, sticks out to me, is a comment he made in Irvine, California. At that particular point, Mr. Andreas was meeting with his counterpart from a Ginomoto Corporation, and they were trying to work out a volume agreement. It's very easy for companies to agree to charge a higher price and what, what that price should be but it's very hard for them to control their volume. It's human nature to make as much as you can. And price fixing agreements can only be made at the highest levels of a company. And so mid-managers who typically are not involved in those agreements, they're wondering why the plant is not being fully utilized. And so there's questions internally. So it's very hard for companies to, to agree to limit volume. But here they were in Irvine, California, working this deal out on volume. 
for all five companies involved in licensing, the Japanese businessman that Mr. Andreas was meeting with asked, is it legal to fix prices in, in the United States? It was a great question. And it's one that we would have asked. It's one the jury wanted to hear the response to. And Mr. Andreas delivered a great line. He said on tape in response to the question, he said, whether it's a legal issue or not, that doesn't matter. What's important is, is this a good business deal? Wow. Yeah. And, and I, th- I think that when, when, when an executive puts himself above the law, that it becomes easy then for the jury to say, you know, you're guilty of this offense. And that uh, takes us back to his comment about the customers, you know. He has, yes. he has no respect for the customer. He, customers. He's all about the money. All about the money. And this, this case boiled down to simple greed. The companies were already making money on these products. Like I said, ADM is a Fortune 50 company. It's estimated that the companies uh, collectively were making over a billion dollars profit a year with their illegal agreements. Illegal agreements that touch products like lysine, but also products that your listeners may be more familiar with, citric acid, and high fructose corn syrup. So a wide-ranging conspiracy to control prices. And as I said, for two and a half years, we were recording this behind the scenes. Mark would go to work every day with a recording device and with his marching orders. We fairly quickly collected evidence on lysine. Lysine is what Mark was in charge of. But we kept trying to branch out to other products like citric acid and high fructose corn syrup because those were bigger product lines. But it became more difficult for Mark to collect that evidence because he's not involved in those products. And so that's one reason this case went on on a covert matter for for two and a half years. Let me share a couple other tapes um, with your listeners. Perhaps Mark at his best was a telephone conversation. As I mentioned earlier, we always worked our witnesses to confirm things that were never on tape and then to ask a question and to shut up because we want to hear what the, um, the subject has to say. We don't want to hear um, what the um, cooperating witness has to say. Right. Typically, a CW, they're so nervous and they're so anxious, they'll ask a question and then they'll end up answering it themselves. And what evidence is that? You know. But when Mark was at his best, we had a telephone call where we're trying to get the um, competitors to come to the United States. And Mark has suggested to us he could do it if he got them to come to a golf course in Maui. He thought that golf would appeal to them. And sure enough, we make this telephone call. And the first thing Mark does is he confirms a meeting in Vancouver that happened before the FBI was involved in the case. And the competitor talks about it and, and gives details about it. And then Mark says, hey, look, this next meeting, since you hosted the one in Vancouver, let ADM host it. And we'd like to host it in Maui at a championship golf course. Well, the competitor answers back. He goes, Maui, that's still the United States. And then Mark asked probably one of the best questions I've ever heard on tape, a very simple question. He says, what does that mean, still the United States? And then there's a, there's a pregnant pause. And Mark, does it, you, know, you know, Jerry, as an investigator, silence is your friend in, in an interview. Um, us interviewers, we want to ask a question, and then we want to be quiet, which is hard to do sometimes. I've had to sit there sometimes for, for 30 seconds to a minute, and it seems like, you know, four or five minutes. 
but eventually the subject will fill that void and say something. And this particular subject, when Mark asked, you know, uh, Maui, you know, still the United States, what does that mean? Eventually he answered it and he said, well, you know, the United States is very severe for the control of antitrust activity. Bingo. Yes. So in a white collar crime case, showing intent is very hard sometimes. You know, in a bank robbery case, it's easy to show intent when, when the guy has the gun to the teller's head. But in a white collar crime case, you know, these could have just been business exploration meetings, right? One side trying to pick the brain of the other side to see, hey, maybe they'll, they'll be dumb enough, to, dumb enough to tell us how big their plant is. So we are always very cautious about possible defenses. But when the subject equates what he's doing with the law of the land, you know, you know the intent. So even though this subject's head was telling him, do not go to the United States, his heart was telling him, let's go play some golf. So all the, all the competing companies agreed to come to Maui, and that was one of our best tapes. Uh, for the very first time, we had five companies agreeing to fix the price and, more importantly, to control the volume. And third on the list is that you, you got to go to Maui. I got to go to Maui. And, you know, each of these trips has a unique story. In, in Maui, the story that comes up is I went with another agent um, who was helping us named Joe Weatherall. Uh, Joe, Joe retired during the case, a, a great agent uh, from West Point, very much an intellectual. So he and I get out to, um, to, to Maui uh, a couple days early because we, we need to check the lay of the land. Uh, we need to see the rooms. We need to get everything wired up just right. We get out there and they had this meeting of these five companies in this large auditorium. There's no way our little green lamp can fit in an auditorium and cover what we need covered. Um, and it would look kind of odd. <laughs> yes, it would look odd. Um, and um, they, they you know, might finally notice it. At that yes, time. We are, we're, we're willing to roll a dice on the green lamp in a small room, but not in an auditorium. Um, so we had to do something that, that we didn't really want to do, but we had to clue in the hotel. So most hotels have a director of security. And typically it's a person who's either former law enforcement or really likes law enforcement, really respects law enforcement. And this director of security um, was a former law enforcement individual. And we, we told him, here's what's going on. Here's who we are. He found us a perfect room. The room was very, very small. And it's so funny on tape, the first thing all the competitors complain about is how small the room is. But it was just perfect for that little green lamp. And well, we could I capture to, everything. I do have to ask you the question because in the movie, they complained so much that they tried to get Mark Whitaker to set up another room. I, I guess that really didn't happen. They complained, uh, it, but they were satisfied. Right. They complained. So in real life, what happened is they complained and, and Mark explained to them he had been trying, trying, and they, they said the hotel's booked. In the movie, they show Mark calling down to the front desk, but he's holding down the, the phone and um, just talking to himself. But, um, you know, the movie does little things like that to, to show the idea that he did make a complaint. Also in this meeting in Hawaii, you know, Mark, of course, knew where the camera was. We had one of the subjects sit right in front of the camera because the room was so small. Mark didn't, didn't miss a beat. He said, hey, don't sit there. I got a better seat for you. And he moved the guy, you know, to, to a better location. And then finally in Hawaii, the other thing that sticks out in Hawaii is 
after these guys met, and it was a great meeting, Terry Wilson led the meeting. Um, and it's always good when, when someone other than your source is leading the meeting because you're very conscientious as a case agent that I don't want the source putting words in people's mouths. So Terry led this meeting, and then a guy from the Ginomoto Corporation also led it with, with Terry. But during the meeting, they all five companies agreed on volume. And our prosecutors up to this point kept saying, hey, these tapes are okay, but we don't hear the word agreement. And of course, case agents are always arguing with prosecutors that people in real life don't use the word agreement and they don't use the word bribe. You look at the action, you look what they're doing. And as they're sitting at an easel, fixing the price and fixing the volume, that action defines what they're doing. But um, the prosecutors really wanted the word agreement. And uh, so, so we worked with Mark over and over to say, at some point in this, in this, um, in, in this meeting, you or someone's got to say the word agreement. Now, in real life, what happened is the Japanese um, competitor who was co-leading the meeting with Mr. Wilson, he said it himself. He said, for the very first time, all five companies agree. And that was, that was great. And then Mark went ahead and repeated it so everyone could clearly hear it. He said, hey, what he just said is that we're all in agreement. I'm in agreement. Now, in the movie, it, because it's a, a more of a comedy, a dark comedy, they have Mark presenting uh, the idea that, hey, what do we just all do here? What, what is this called? What word would you use to describe what we just did? And uh, finally, they all say, agree. We all, we all agree. And um, so yeah, that's, that's it. So, it, you know, again, the, the movie does follow real life, but they also sometimes fudge a little bit to, to drive home the point. And then finally, in Hawaii, when this was all done, I love playing golf. And I went out to the golf driving range after all the bad guys had, had, had cleared the scene. And I went out there to hit some golf balls to kind of catch my breath. As I'm hitting golf balls, a golf ball came whizzing um, right by me. I mean, probably within a foot of hitting me. And I turned around. It was one of the co-conspirators, a guy from France, working for a company called Euro Lysine. And of course, I knew who he was. He did not know who I was. He came over to apologize, you know, kind of a scene of irony there as, as I just collected evidence that, that will send him to jail and his company to pay large fines. And he's apologizing for almost hitting me with a golf ball. So, as I said, each, each of these meetings have, have their own story. Uh, so it's a, a little bit of uh, irony and, and payback. Yeah, it is. You know, these guys became so used to one another. Early on, of course, they were very fearful of law enforcement. But after two and a half years of never being caught, of saying what they wanted to say, they became very, very relaxed. In Atlanta, which was our last tape meeting, uh, this is January 1995, the competitors all met in Atlanta. And whenever you use tech equipment, we typically have backups because FBI agents never trust tech equipment. And uh, sure enough, Mark's main recording device, which was hidden inside a briefcase, it stopped working right before the meeting. And Mark had to go into the meeting. He was the host of the meeting um, since it was in the United States. So Mark goes into the meeting without his briefcase. I, I told Mark that, hey, I'll work on this. You go to the meeting and we'll get it to you somehow, some way. So Mark went to the meeting with, a, with another tape recording device, but it wasn't as nice as the one in the briefcase. Uh, the quality was not as nice. We finally got the briefcase working with the help of the Atlanta um, FBI office. It was nothing major. The batteries had stopped working. Even though I had brand new batteries, 
they weren't working anymore. So we got new batteries in the briefcase and I ended up delivering the briefcase to the meeting. I'd called over there, Mark answered, and he acted like it was a hotel staff. And I pretended as if I'm with the hotel staff. I said, well, Mr. Whitaker, this is so-and-so with the hotel staff. I found your briefcase downstairs. You must've left it down here. Your name tags on the outside here. And so I went to the hotel room and knocked on the door. When I knocked on the door, the competitor started joking, it must be either the FBI or the FTC. The FTC also investigates uh, price fixing matters. And so we hear here. Just for, just for yeah. uh, people listening, that's the stands for the Federal Trade Commission. That's correct. And so here these guys are very callous now. Well, very callous because they're in Atlanta. I thought they didn't want to, you know, meet in the United States. That's right. But after two and a half years, all their defenses were down. They're laughing and giggling and making tons of money. And they're joking that the FBI is at the door. And they were right. And then the final thing I want to tell, tell the listeners about tapes, um, if you watch the trailer, the movie trailer for, for the informant, you'll see a scene in which Mark Whitaker opens up his briefcase uh, during a meeting. Mark's boss had just gone to the restroom, Michael Andreas, and Mark heard a noise from the briefcase, and Mark thought the tape recording device was failing. So during the meeting, while the two of the um, co-conspirators are at an easel, talking about the marketplace, Mark is back at the table opening up the secret compartment and clearly showing the Nagra tape recording device that was strapped into his briefcase. We're watching this going crazy. What is he doing? Mark, you know, checks it out and then puts it back in place. Right when he finishes, uh, his supervisor, Michael Andreas, walks into the room. I've always wondered, you know, what would happen, what would have happened had his supervisor been quicker in the bathroom he would have discovered what Mark was doing. And we didn't have enough evidence at that time to go public. You know, we didn't have enough evidence to make a case. And, and the whole thing would have been, you know, down the drain because of this guy's careless actions. Wow. So as investigators, we, we saw this. We ended up, Jerry, spending about three weeks on this one little scene. We actually called the Behavioral Science Unit um, back at Quantico. We were worried that something else was going on. Why would somebody take this type of risk? What was going on in his life? Was this a sign or a symptom of something else going on? Were there other signs? Because I, I, I do understand you know, your concern, but he was aware that the tape recorder in the briefcase had had issues. That's why you, know, you had to bring it to him. So even though he, t- he, he did this risky thing, it sounds like there might have been other things at this point where you were starting to question his mental health. Well, um, now this is a separate meeting from Atlanta. So Atlanta is where his briefcase had problems. This meeting I'm referring to is in Irvine, California. And so at that particular time in the case, the recorder had, had no issues that we were aware of. So I'd asked Mark, I said, why'd you do this? And he said, I, I heard a noise. I told him, I don't care if you heard a 747, don't ever do that again. But behind the scenes, we did just what you're doing, Jerry. We, we started thinking, what are we seeing? You know, he's been undercover now for, for well over a year. There, there have been some meetings where he seems stressed out. Uh, he seems to have some highs and then he has some lows. That coupled with taking this unnecessary risk 
caused us to call call the behavioral science unit, and Wait, we discussed before, it. Yeah, before you tell us about that, because again, I I'm I'm trying not to you know interrupt you, so I, I I take you off course. But I would like to ask you about how you felt about them. In the book, it says that you're starting to develop. It says an affection for them, and, and I know. When FBI agents, it, it occurs when, in, in my cases, when you're working with a cooperating witness or a source for a long time, you do become friendly. You do care about each other. So is this a concern because he's your, you know, cooperating witness and you're worried about the case? Or are you genuinely worried about Mark Whitaker? I would say both. Um, and your listeners may not really appreciate uh, what you just said, but you do become very, very close to these people. In Mark's case, we kept challenging his motivation. Why are you doing this? And what kept coming back from him at this particular time in the case is that he was a white knight. He was tired of what was going on at ADM. In his eyes, the company was fixing prices in, in many different products, but also taking a lot of shortcuts. The company is just operating differently. And, you know, when the company motto is the competitor is our friend and the customer is the enemy, that's a different type of vibe that goes downward deep into the company. And we thought that Mark was doing this for the right reasons. Um, he wanted to clean up the company. When you shave a guy on a routine basis, um, you do become close, um, but you also share a lot of laughs together. You know, we'd meet each other not only early in the morning, but also we'd meet each other late at night. And we share in the excitement as much as we're, you know, our personalities are not to get too excited with, with the source. Most agents work a source just for a few months and then they move on to some, you know, another case or another source. We worked with this guy for years. A Christmas would come. We'd, we'd wish each other a Merry Christmas. And then eventually he gave me a Christmas card one year of he and his family. And I used to carry that card around because when I would brief the case um, while we were in the covert stage, many people at headquarters or prosecutors would refer to Mark as, you know, the source, the source. And, and sometimes I'd want to personalize it because they were making decisions about his, his future life and his future professional life that I wanted to make sure that we made the best decision for him as an individual. And to do that, sometimes you had to personalize things. And this was not just the source. This was Mark Whitaker, married, um, a father, three kids, youngest president in the um, history of ADM, of a subsidiary of ADM, rumored by Wall Street to be in line to become the next president of the parent company, a young hotshot, and a guy who was making 200 tapes and meeting with us all the time and doing things that were not natural for him, wearing a wire every day to work. Imagine that stress if you're the, in a large corporation having to deliver the key lines at the key time. So anyway, it's, we, we were worried about him. And, and just that one scene in the movie, that one scene that happened um, in Oct October 25th, 1993, was, was one that caused us a lot of heartache. As FBI agents, we never want to have blinders. Um, even when we go to Quantico, they used to do exercises of looking at a picture and trying to see as much as you can. Uh, some people would see the old lady. Some people would see the young lady. Some people would see both ladies. 
summer thought process. Don't have blinders on. Try to see everything you can. Take in all the evidence, but try to understand what you're actually seeing and not to be predisposed by thinking, oh, well, he's just doing that for no reason. There is a reason this man took that risk. You know, there's a reason they made this case into a movie and they made it into a movie, not because this is necessarily a price fixing case, but because there were other things going on behind the scenes. One of those things, which we'll get into a little bit later, turns out to be embezzlement. When you study embezzlers, one thing you find out is that they take a lot of overt risk and that other people don't really see at the time. But when they look back at their activities, they notice how reckless the person was. Anyway, a long way to say that him opening up that briefcase during the meeting was much more deeper, deeper analyzed than just, oh, wow, that's kind of funny or that's kind of interesting or that's kind of bad. Like I said, we talked to behavioral science people at length. They were in agreement that this was probably foreshadowing something, but we didn't know what. One other comment on that point. A cooperating witness working long term is very similar to an agent going undercover. And I know you actually participated as a UCA in a long-term undercover case. The FBI makes sure that an undercover agent has special training. As a matter of fact, not everybody is allowed to do it. You know, you have to get assessed for your, your abilities to be able to take that type of stress. And so basically what you just told us is is that Mark Whitaker in this particular case is being put in that similar type of role, but he doesn't have any training. You know, you you, you are his lifeline and you're there to, to, to see how he's handling it. So, you know, it is good that you are noticing these things. Well, Jerry, you sound just like Mark's defense attorney. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> that, how, that's a, how dare you <laughs> yes um that's a that's a compliment though i thought that was a great point his defense attorney raised pre-indictment that that point exactly and here's what's ironic i had just come off a three-year deep undercover assignment where every six months i was given a psychological test every six months i went to quantico to meet with other undercover agents, to include Joe Pistone, who um, was one of the most famous undercover agents in Bureau history, just to check my well-being, just to make sure that I was still identifying with the good guys. So there were protocols in place, as you said, for uh, special agents at that time um, who were undercover. Mark Whitaker was as much undercover as I was. And, um, you know, his protocols were were me and Brian um, checking on his well-being. And I think he got lucky. Um, in that uh, we were both very caring individuals and uh, we had, you know, had worked with him f- for such a long time. He, he's, even though he had lied to us um, early on, on price fixing, he seemed to be hitting a home run because the things he told us on price fixing, we were able to confirm on tape. And, and um, so we, we were always worried about his well-being um, and um, more than, than the emotional well-being, um, but also the, the professional well-being. Um, we, we had a real belief, Brian and I, that when the case went public, that when the tape recording finally ended, um, that you know eventually ADM would learn through the um, discovery process who the cooperator was, and that when that happened, Mark would not be welcomed at the company. Ironically, uh, Mark always held this belief that he was the white knight that the board 
would thank for cleaning up the company and that he would be um, appointed the next leader of ADM. Well, I guess he can be termed a whistleblower. And as we know from cases, you know, all over the country, usually things don't go well for whistleblowers. No, that's true. And Mark has called himself since uh, in the recent past, he's called himself a whistleblower. Do you, you, know, think, he, do you think he was? Um, I don't think, no, I've, I probably, I have not put much thought to it, but knowing that, uh, I guess when I think of a whistleblower, I think of somebody who, um, is telling the truth from, from day one is not shading things, is not involved in any criminal activity, but simply stumbles across something, maybe because of their job, maybe they're an auditor. The company is unwilling to go, go public. And so then they make the hard choice. You know, I, I, I just thought about it, and, and you're right, because he didn't bring this price-fixing case to you. I mean, the reason it happened is because he had created that initial lie of the extortion case. Right. So it's not even as if he had looked at price-fixing and said, let me, let me call the FBI. It just happened that you caught him in a, another lie and he presented this to you. And then, you know, from the book, I know many times he tried to, to stop you from investigating that case. So I guess I, sh- I shouldn't have, I, I, I think from the book and listening to him in the movie, the term whistleblower came up, but yeah, you're right. I'm not quite sure if he, if he fits that title. Plus, if you could tell us a little bit more about when we talk about him, you know, thinking he's going to be the next president. He was pretty high up. This is not your typical whistleblower because he really was an executive. I mean, how much money was he making at the time? And this was, you know, more than 20 years ago. Yeah. So um, because it was more than 20 years ago, my memory's a little fuzzy, but I I believe he was making making about $350,000 a year um, when you include the stock options. 20 years ago. So 20 years ago. I do recall that um, before we went public with the investigation, I had put together um, a presentation and, and a request for the FBI to consider Mark for the Lou Peters Award, which is an award given to the civilian who helps the FBI the most in, in a year on a case. It's the highest award we give in the FBI to a civilian who helps the FBI, and it is not given every year. Um, I actually have, I reviewed a, a hate crime case in which the uh, source, the cooperating witness received that award from Director Free. So yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. And so um, I had put together some information and had had several phone calls with headquarters. But in that process, I was asking for $17,000 a month for the first three months. The $17,000 represented Mark's living expenses 20 years ago, you know, which, which corresponds with his salary. So I had, I actually had got some traction from headquarters to support this because, you know, we were all viewing him as the person who had sacrificed a lot in the last two and a half years, a person who was rumored by wall street to be in line to be the next president of the company, a person who was already, you know, um, part of the corporate leadership team. And, and we had a strong belief that this would all, go away due to his cooperation uh, with the FBI. And it was told to me that he was the highest ranking individual at a company ever to wear a wire. 
and for that sacrifice, you know, I, I didn't want the Bureau to turn their back on him. And people were lining up at headquarters to support this effort. Thank goodness that he didn't get the award because we both know that you're going to tell us about, uh, you know, some things that he did. Getting that award would have been an embarrassment to the Bureau. It would have been. Um, but before I get to that, let me share with your um, listeners some of the things that happen when you're covert for two and a half years. That's the best part of an investigation. That's, that's when us FBI agents are out there uh, collecting the evidence and evaluating it and putting the case together. And we have a lot of power at that time. We have power to foresee defenses and maybe to def- defeat those defenses. You know, make sure we're seeing everything we can see. We think about what are we missing? If, if I was a defense attorney, how would I defend this? And then we can send our cooperator out to ask those questions to kind of, kind of defeat those, those defenses. But we also, many times in the FBI, your greatest fight is not with defense counsel or with the subjects. It's internally. And so the book really chronicles well some of the, the internal fights we were having behind the scenes when this case was covert. We had different prosecuting entities trying to take charge of the case. We had the Central District of Illinois, which is the United States Attorney's Office, wanting the case. And then we had the Department of Justice Antitrust Division wanting the case. And they didn't want to share. And us agents were caught in the middle. And there became a very dramatic scene um, that's in the book. It didn't make it into the movie, but it's in the book. Very dramatic scene where the United States Attorney from the Central District of Illinois was in D.C. And she spoke to the head of the antitrust division at the Department of Justice and thought she had an agreement where the central district would take the case, which meant that we were going to indict immediately. The central district of Illinois wanted to indict this case much, much earlier than the antitrust division. The antitrust division wanted to collect more and more evidence, and the central district said we have enough, and we were caught in the middle as agents. And a very dramatic scene unfolded where we had a conference call a few days later after announcing this change where the Department of Justice flip-flopped and said, you know, over my, the, the, the lead said, over my dead, kicking, screaming body, will I ever give up, give up this case? And so then our, our, the prosecutors from the Central District of Illinois, the U.S. Attorney's Office, they were off the case. Now we had the antitrust attorneys in charge. They thought that Brian and I, the two FBI agents in the case, were behind this, which we were not but they wouldn't talk to us for like a month. All this um, behind the scenes. What? <laughs> yes, it, 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 it was bad. It was bad. Um, finally, uh, an attorney there at the antitrust division named Jim Munchnick kind of broke the ice and started talking to us and we started talking to him, but it's very uncomfortable. But Meanwhile, they a, we're sitting- But they had to catch up now, right? Because they had oh, not yes. been with the case all along. That's right. They had to catch up and, and this led to the case going on and on and on. So anyway, so that's another reason it went for two and a half years, but another stressor on Mark. What kind of support were you getting from headquarters? Because there's a saying in the Bureau, and it goes, you know it well, little cases, little problems, big cases, big problems. So what was going on with headquarters? Were, Were they, was this case, you know, under the oversight of headquarters too? Because that adds another layer of complication. Yeah. So we had, we had good support from headquarters. 
And at this stage, we're still covert. But here's a funny story for you. The saying you, you just said, no cases, no problems, small cases, small problems, large cases, large problems. Director Free came out to the Springfield Division one day while we were covert. And he was listening to some of these arguments between our prosecutors, um, you know, this tug of war about which which entity was going to prosecute. And um, he said that exact saying to me. And I think that's why us agents are very fond of Director Free. Yeah, yeah. He gets it. Uh, he was one of us at one time, uh, a special agent himself. And to have a director come out and visit you and to say that and to recognize it, uh, it meant a lot to us. Mm. I've always liked him, you know. I, yep. I actually tried to get him to, to do the podcast. I I I got a uh, a a decline, but I'm no. not through yet. I'm. <laughs> I'll keep. I'll. I'll keep trying. Maybe one day uh, he he will come on. Uh, well, I have another director free story for you um, that I'm going to tell before we end. Okay. Um, it comes up on the on the embezzlement part of this case. Okay, I'll remember uh, to to make sure that you tell it. Okay. Well, where we are are now in our timeline is we're ready to go public. Um, and so we're, we're up to June 1995. And um, just to bring the listeners up to date, because it gets kind of confusing, for two and a half years, we've been recording executives of ADM talking about fixing product lines and fixing prices and volumes with their competitors. The whole case started when Mark Whitaker told his boss, he, made, he told a made-up story about the Japanese trying to extort ADM. And um, that story got um, sent to the CIA, got sent to the FBI, got sent to us. The FBI goes out and talks to Mark. Um, he repeats the lie, but his wife tells him, you got to tell the FBI everything going on at ADM. And, and eventually we hear about the price fixing activity. So we are ready to go public. And in the FBI, when we go public on a big case like this, it's a big deal. We do what we call simultaneous investigation. At one night, at one particular time, we, we unleash everything we have. And so in this case, what that meant was uh, we executed three search warrants, served 30 grand jury subpoenas, conducted 40 interviews. And this took place across 10 different FBI field offices and our legat in, in Paris. But before we did that, we wanted an opportunity to talk to our two main subjects, Terry Wilson, who's known as the fixer at ADM, and Mick Andreas, or Michael Andreas, the son of the chairman of the board, Dwayne Andreas. In every case that we have in the bureau, we always want an opportunity to, to have a conversation with the subjects. And uh, especially in a case like this, if you can get a subject to talk, in a case like this where you've been following them for two and a half years, uh, they're either going to lie to you, which is good, um, because that's another federal crime. It also will keep them off the stand. But if they're not lying to you, they're, they're most likely then confessing, which is great. So the key, as I talk to younger agents and I talk to other um, people who conduct interviews, is not so much to have a confrontation. Because if you go in there to have a confrontation, they can see the stress in your face and undoubtedly, they're going to ask at one point in time, do I need a, an attorney? Or I don't want to talk with you without my attorney being here. But if you go in there with the idea that my goal is just to get them to, to talk to me, to feel comfortable with me, to have a conversation with me, 
if you go in there willing to, to lose the battle to win the war, if you go in there to be a little naive, to let them have hope that maybe they could shape and, and direct the, um, the investigation, you go in there acting kind of like Columbo, you might, you might just get something. And, and so that's the approach that, that uh, my partner and I took when we, um, uh, before we went totally public with the case, that particular night, we wanted to talk to Michael Andreas first to see if he would cooperate or at least get his statements. And then we went to talk to Terry Wilson. But on both individuals, we use the same approach. And that is, hey, we need your help. You guys are the experts in business, not us. But we got to deal with something. We, we have this allegation um, that's come to us that, that you guys are involved in price fixing. And so we talked about the allegation. We talked about how complicated it is and, and our frustration with it. And it's not our typical bank robbery type cases. And, you know, we know there's two sides to every story. And we've only heard one side. And they had a chance, you know, to work with us. And, and certainly they'd, they'd rather work with us than, than work against us. And, and maybe we can make this go away, you know, if they could help explain what's going on or not going on. Well, eventually, Jerry, uh, both these guys talked to us that night. Even though they did not confess, they contradicted themselves. Oh, nice. Yes, right and left. And so stuff that we knew was false because we had the tapes, we let them talk and we let them run with it. So we got, um, oh, about eight to 10 pages from both of them of typed FD302s, statements that, of course, kept them off the stand. And um, if you're a jury member, even though the judge may instruct, hey, don't read too much into it, the defendant doesn't take the stand, most people, human nature is to think, if I didn't do the crime, I'm taking the stand to say, I didn't do this. And, and, and if you could explain that for everybody, what you mean by it kept them off the stand, the fact that you had this investigative report, or a 302, that had contradictory information. Sure. Um, so when, when you take the stand, the government then has the ability to cross-examine prior statements you've made. And one of those prior statements would have been the statement they gave to us the night in June 1995. And the last thing their attorneys wanted them, their clients, was to be cross-examined on statements that the attorneys knew were false and contradictory to the tapes. And so those 302s were not introduced through the defendants because the defendants did not take the stand. Okay, so the, the night of June 27th, 1995 was the night we went public. We've been covert for two and a half years. We can um, have conversations or we confront our two main subjects. They both talk to us, they lie, and they deny. It's a home run. In fact, the whole night was a home run. Uh, we executed three search warrants. We got great evidence. Mark was wearing a tape recording device that night. He had the subjects on tape talking about how they had buffaloed the FBI, um, how the FBI didn't understand the case, and how this case would go on for at least 10 more years and nothing would ever happen. Everyone was pleased at the local office and at headquarters, and we were all excited. So what happened then is we start the process of getting ready for trial. And sometime in August 1995, so two months later, we are preparing for trial and for, and for different motions that are coming up. As a matter of course, we, we stay in contact every so often with our source, Mark Whitaker, where we are meeting with him daily. Now the meetings become maybe every week or every two weeks. On this particular day in August 1995, we had agreed previously to meet with Mark to have lunch at a Chinese restaurant. That morning, 
our attorneys contacted us in a panic. And they were kind of mean. They were upset with us. And Brian and I are asking, what's going on? And the attorneys tell us that they just had a phone call from ADM's defense firm, Williams and Conley, and that this defense firm had told them, you need to get to Washington, D.C. right away. We need to meet with the attorney general, Janet Reno, because after she hears what we had to say, we think you'll dismiss all charges in this case, and you might even end up indicting the two FBI agents on the case. Wow. Yeah. And so uh, we had no idea what was going on, but I think the book cover from the book, The Informant, I think it, it, it got it right. It says in the book cover, the FBI was ready to take down America's most politically powerful corporation, but there was one thing they didn't count on, the informant. Wow. That's the great thing about this book. And I know I've gone on and on and on about how much I love this book, but the twist and turns, the highs and the lows, not about the case, but the emotional toll, the sacrifices, the things that happen is, is unbelievable. But this part of the case, when you are being accused of being in some type of conspiracy, was just like mind blowing. So do me a favor, just give us a little taste about what they're talking about. And then we're going to have to stop. And then we'll pick up again and do a part two. But just give us a little tease as to what this is all about. Sure. Well, we found out what it's all about. A few hours later, we met Mark at that Chinese restaurant. And the movie scene gets it just right. The screenwriter he took that scene from my FD-302, and he told me that the FD-302 was so bizarre, he didn't have to jazz it up any. So what you see in the movie is really how, how it unfolded in real life. We sit down, and Mark Whitaker starts telling us, hey, I need to tell you guys something. We, we give him a warning. Hey, you, you're represented now by, by an attorney. You can't just talk to us, and we're not asking you any questions. Well, Mark says, look, I need to tell you something. And so we're already on edge because of the phone call from, our, from the defense firm. We're on edge, like what's going on? And so Mark starts talking about, hey, let me know if this is a problem, guys. And he starts talking about using the corporate car or the corporate airplane for personal use. And you see in the movie that we are so relieved because we say, that's it? That's what this is all about? No, that, 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 that's no big deal. It'll be some tax issues maybe, but... It's no big deal. Well, then Mark eventually gets around. He goes through a couple more examples, and they're, they're very benign. Mark finally says to us, he goes, look, guys, how about this? What if it was common practice at ADM for corporate executives to be paid kickbacks in cash underneath the table? That caught our attention, and that's when the case took a different direction. Wow. <laughs> and I know how much he's talking about. At this junction, he admits to taking $500,000 under the table compensation authorized by the company and the other executives are doing it. The movie does a good job of showing how that money figure keeps changing and changing and changing. And eventually that $500,000 
became $9.5 million. Okay, we're going to stop now because I think that's, I think what you've just said is what they call a cliffhanger. <laughs> so we're going to continue this for part two, even though you've been talking for more than an hour and a half, there is still so much more to this story and this case. Sounds good. Thanks, Jerry. Okay. And that's the end of part one. You don't want to miss part two, because that's when the lying, the stealing, the dirty dealing, and the backstabbing really starts. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Bob Herndon. You'll find links to Kirk Eckenwall's book and the movie trailer for The Informant. There's also links to newspaper articles about the case. There's also a video, a documentary from the Discovery Channel featuring the real Mark Whitaker, Bob Herndon, and his co-case agent, Brian Shepard. And photos of Bob Herndon with Mark Whitaker, Matt Damon, and actor-comedian Joe McHale, who played Bob Herndon in the movie. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. Don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or whatever your favorite podcast app is. I did create a how to listen to a podcast blog post for those of you who are listening at your desktop. If you have a smartphone or a tablet, there's an easier way. The post is on my website in the blog post section. There's also a link on the homepage footer right next to the Apple Podcast and Google Podcast icons. My crime story recommendation for you this week is, yep, you guessed it, The Informant by Kirk Eckenwald. Absolutely one of the best narrative nonfiction books I've ever read. And while we're talking about books, I want to thank all of you who went out and picked up a copy of my FBI Philadelphia Corruption Squad crime series featuring Special Agent Carrie Wheeler. Pay to Play and Greedy Givers are available as ebooks, paperbacks, and Pay to Play is also an audiobook. Currently, they're both available only on Amazon.com, but I am negotiating with my literary agency to release Pay to Play so that I can make both books available at other online and retail bookstores. Because of the holidays and my shoulder injury, my nonfiction book, The FBI in Film and Fiction, is a little bit behind schedule but I'm having the best time writing this book because I get to read other books, watch a lot of TV shows and movies as I do my research. I'm also having fun re-listening to some of the episodes as I'm looking for short excerpts to support my responses to 21 cliches and misconceptions about the FBI in books, TV, and movies. Yes, I said 21. No wonder I can't finish this book. I keep adding and changing the cliches. I want to remind you again, if you're not a member of my reader team, I send out a monthly email just once a month where I keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV, and movies. So if you're not yet a member of my reader team, you can go to my website, jerrywilliams.com to sign up there. Or if you're listening to this episode on a podcast app that supports links, 
You'll find a link to join my reader team right in this episode's description. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.